This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I'll summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book for my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 75th episode of The Quarter Bin, we're looking at Marvel 2-in-1 number 57 from, obviously, Marvel Comics, cover dated November 1979. And by we, I mean myself and a returning guest. You heard him way back as part of the panel in the legendary episode 50, where we talked about Turok, Dinosaur Hunter and the comics boom and bust that occurred during that era. So back on the show we have from Back to the Bins, and Listen to the Prophets, both on the Two True Freaks Network, and from New York City, the producer himself, Paul Spitaro. Hey, how's it going? Glad to have you back on the show. I am currently from Long Island, though. I hail from New York City, but I no longer live there. From over here in the Midwest, it's all the same. All those well, that's, boroughs, that's, it's all a city, one city, five boroughs. No one else have boroughs. Does that make you special somehow? Anyway, we, I'm bitter. Yes, we are special. <laughs> and I don't remember who I was telling this to, but from our perspective, did you ever see those pictures that they have to hang up where it'll show, like, the East Coast and it'll have, you know, New York and all these cities, and then it's just got, like, a little bit of land and then it's got the Pacific Ocean? Right. <laughs> from the New York perspective, that's the country. Well, just so you know, we exist. Over here, we play college football. That's the big difference. (laughs) Great to have you back on the show. Now, you do know, by appearing on episode 50, and now on episode 75, you're pretty much committed to being on episode 100 as well. Anyway, we'll pencil that in for sometime next year, but just so you know. You can write me in in ink. (laughs) If I'm I'm invited for episode 100, I will be here. Well, we'll worry about that. Those are details. My intern, in a minute. <laughs> Certainly my intern could talk to your intern, but I am your intern. Wait a minute. This is not going to work. It's, it's, it's like time travel. <laughs> it's a conundrum. I like to think of myself as a former Back to the Bins intern. Well, as, as we were talking about before we started to record, an intern is like an apprentice lackey. And I think you've certainly stepped up to that level at the least. Oh, thank you. That's... You might have even gotten to the level of hoodlum. That means a lot to me, Paul. That means a lot. <laughs> now, you are here because, well, your intern booked it, but you're here because you're a fan of Marvel Comics from this era, the mid to late 70s, and I gave you a list of about 10 comics to pick from, and you pick this one, so... I guess the first question is, what is it about 1970s Marvel that appeals to you so strongly? Well, as you know, I am a dinosaur, even older than yourself. <laughs> so I started buying comics. I, I've told this story many times, so anybody who's listened to me enough has probably heard it. But growing up, I'd seen the cartoons, the Marvel Comics cartoons, the you know the Superman Adventures of Superman TV series, the Batman TV series, and to a small extent, the Super Friends, because that really hadn't hit its stride yet. And I had read the occasional comic book, but there was something that just like a switch that flicked, 
And it was when I bought Amazing Spider-Man 131, which is the wedding of Doc Ock and Aunt May. And all of a sudden, it was like, okay, I'm not just reading these anymore. I have to have every one ever. Right. You know, from that point forward, which I would say was, I guess, around 1973, I started a lifelong obsession with comics. And they say that the things that you read, the music you listen to, that they affect your tastes for the rest of your life from the point when you're like 12, 13, 14 years old. That's when your tastes are really set. Right. That's what I've heard. The golden age of comics is 13. Whatever you were reading when you were 13, that's your golden age. I fall right into to that description. So things that, that were coming out around 1975, 1976, that's my golden age of comics. And, you know, here we're talking 1979, but I was, you know, I, I was slow to walk away from it. I did walk <laughs> away a little while in the 80s. Uh, right about the time when I graduated from college, I, I walked away because I decided I was too old to be reading comics. And then about maybe about seven, eight years later, I decided, screw that. I'm never going to be too old to buy comics. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much my story. I was out from a couple years after college, about the time Emily was coming along for about 10 years, and then sucked me back in. And it, it's it's changed. It's morphed a little. I don't have that need to buy everything new off the newsstand. You know, we were talking before. I, I fit into your paradigm a little. I went to a Memorial Day comic sale today. The deal I had was they gave me a short box, which fits between, I would say, between 150 and 175 comics. Sounds about and right. It was like, you know, you can fill this up for $50. You know, it was 30 paying, cents each, 35 about 30 cents, cents each. a book. So it's a little reasonable price as far as you're concerned. Well, just between us. Don't tell Shag because this sort of thing drives him crazy. But I've determined that three for a dollar does count as a quarter bin. That's still acceptable? That's still acceptable because it's under 50 cents. That's the main thing. you got to get well, under I, the 50 cent bin. I'm okay with, with 50 and more, but you got to have a little gravitas to it then. It can't just exactly. be exactly. you know, a book that you're picking up for the heck of it. You know, that, you give me an Amazing Fantasy 15, I could spend more than 50 cents on it. <laughs> but that is the great thing about the super cheap discounts, is that you really can just take a flyer on stuff. Exactly. Exactly. I, I just, you know, if, if it's a book I don't have and it has a character I'm interested in it, that's fine. Put it in the box. Right. And I've become, as I have, let's just say, gained more life experience over the years. Let's just put it that way, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, as as you and I have become life veterans, that I've become less of a fanatic collector and much more of a reader of comics. That's my, my primary impulse is to read something to enjoy it. I've rediscovered the joy of collecting and fi- filling the holes in my collection through sales like this. Exactly, exactly. But if I have to like really sacrifice to buy... I'm not interested in it. I, I feel bad that that's that it's come to that, but the the collecting aspect of it is fun, and if I can do it and not have it break my budget, I'm all for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll find the storage space for them, but but I'm not going to empty my bank account for them. That is what we like to hear. That is the right answer. You know, I mean, and we've talked in the past, and we'll talk in the future. You know, the price point of three and four dollars a book for a book that's, that takes me 15 minutes to read—it's just not. It's, That's it's not worth it to me. Yeah. Now, for this one, like I said, I gave you I don't know, 10 or 15 books from the, the database that fit this late 70s Marvel. So assuming you didn't just pick this one at random, pick why seven, was this one the choice? Did, did you say which one we were doing? 
Marvel 2-in-1, number 57. The Thing and Wonder. Against Solar. <laughs> well, that's the Project Pegasus uh, saga in Marvel 2-in-1, which I remember fondly. And I actually covered with Ian Levenstein from Comic Timing, we covered the first issue of this storyline, which was Marvel 2-in-1, number 53, on Back to the Bins, episode 215. Uh, so if anybody's interested, they can go back and hear about that. But I, I went, I went back and listened to it to prepare for this. That, I Encourage hope it, listeners to do so as well. I was going to say, I hope <laughs> it made you more enthusiastic and not less. But I, I remember this storyline fondly that it was, you know, you, you got to keep in mind these team-up books. Marvel team-up, Brave and the Bold, DC Comics pre- Presents. They generally had a lot of very light fare in them. A lot of one-and-dones a lot of very contrived plot lines to get these characters together. So when you have something that is a little bit more epic, and that's, I think, a fair description of it, that it's only a little bit. It's not not truly an epic saga. But a running storyline that goes through, in this case, it went from 53 to 58, and it was cohesive, and it had quality artwork in it throughout. The storyline, you know, made sense uh, and it was just a fun read. So when when you had that on on the list, you combine it with the fact that I've already covered one of the books, and and I when we covered it, it didn't let me down and make me feel like oh that's one of those books that I remembered fond, fondly, but now that I'm reading it, oh I, yeah, that does happen, doesn't it? Disappointing when you do that. You especially when you're reading it to sort of critique it. When I saw this on your list, I said that's that's great. This that that makes this a companion episode to an episode I've already done, and and it just seemed like the right way to go. Mike Bailey has said a few times that he doesn't know he doesn't know anybody who loves this era of Marvel Comics more than I do, and I, it's it's either a compliment or or a uh, an insult, but I'm taking it as a compliment. Yeah, you do that, Paul. You do that. <laughs> but it, it it truly is. I, I just love this era. I'm fun when I think back on it. You know, you, you look back on it. I started collecting. Like I said, Spider Man was up to 131. Uh, the Fantastic Four was in the 140s. The Avengers was in the 120s. Iron Man was in the 80s, I believe, or the 70s, the world was much more accessible back then. You didn't have the digital accessibility that you do now, but between reprints that were out there coming out in Marvel's Greatest Comics and Marvel Tales and Marvel Superheroes, you had access to a lot of the older stories, and it wasn't so daunting. And eventually, you know, I had read pretty much all of the stuff that had come out before I started collecting. When you look past the point when I stopped in the 80s, so there's so much content that's been produced that I will never in my lifetime get it all read. I will never have the level of – I don't want to say expertise because I think that's, that's a little bit of a bold statement that uh, I can't necessarily back up. But I will never have the level of knowledge of the stuff that came after I stopped that I have with regard to the stuff that came before. And this falls right in the wheelhouse of, and, it, and it, it presents as one of the – Typical quality stories of the time. Again, it's not the greatest in the world, but it's not. It, it's very enjoyable. And if I just say the enjoyable books of this era, this one is right on on par with it. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't get my rating yet. Now here's the thing, though. It's interesting you say that because, to be honest, if I'd known that this was part five of six, I probably wouldn't have bought it. Because what I liked about it, it's it's what you said about team up and two and one and 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 the dc team ups as well was that they tended to be one-off type of stories 
and that's custom made for this podcast, right? Or back to the bins, you know, custom made for a random. We're just going to cover one book, not in a serialized format, one issue. Well, we cover a lot in bins that are either the start of a saga, and we also have right. a lot that are like the final mm-hmm. issue of a saga. And when I when we rate them on the show, I try to keep both things in mind. How would I look at this if I've been reading it throughout and was totally familiar with what's going on? Or the reverse of that, if I'm reading it and going to continue to read it. But I also try to look at it as if, okay, if I'm just handed this one book and I'm not going to get to read any more, how satisfying is it? Right. And, and I think it can be very satisfying from the perspective of if you say, wow, I read this and I couldn't wait to get the next issue. That's still satisfying. That's not to say that, you know, that's not a negative critique. A negative critique is I picked it up. I had no clue what was going on and I really didn't care. Mm-hmm. That's a negative critique. Right. I've struggled with that a little bit here on the quarter bit is that I will sometimes, you know, pull up the first issue of four or the last issue of four. I guess it's worse to have the second or third. Covering only the middle chapter is probably the worst possible scenario. At least with the first, you get the setup, but not knowing how it ends, or you get the ending and not know, not knowing the setup. Neither of those is perfect, but it is better than just having the random middle <laughs> middle segment, I suppose. Even the second or third, I think you can critique it fairly. I'm, I'm looking for two things in it then. I'm looking for them to bring me up to date on what happened right. without banging me the head over the head with exposition. I'd like to see the exposition done in, a, in an intelligent way where it's more subtle than, hey, how about ten minutes ago when I did such and such? You know what yeah, I mean? Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, if, if you're going to do that, then just have a flashback panel to tell me what's going on. Don't don't make it part of the dialogue if you're going to be that clunky with it. So bringing me up to date so that I don't feel like I, you know, that I feel like it's okay that I missed the prior issue, even though I'd like to read it. And then at the end of it, I want it to be, hey, this was interesting enough and moved the story along well enough that now I'm interested in knowing what's going to happen next. If, if it gives me both of those, then I, I feel like I can still give a, a legitimate critique of that issue as a, as a standalone issue. I like it, that. It, it doesn't necessarily have to have a beginning, middle, and end to it to be a satisfactory issue for me. It just has to have a compelling story that I can understand that makes me want to read more. We talked and you said you have both a, a digital copy but also have a physical copy of this book. So I wanted to ask you about that. So do you have any idea when you would have acquired that physical copy? And more importantly, about how much do you think you paid for it? I can tell you pretty much exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is cover dated November of 1979. <laughs> so you probably so picked it up in August. In, I guess I bought it in September of 1979. For, for 40 cents. <laughs> and I bought it for 40 cents, <laughs> which is the cover price. I couldn't tell you if I bought it from my local candy store or if at this point <laughs> if I was buying them from the comic store. Right. I don't have an actual recollection of when it started that I started to have a, uh, a pull list. It might have been it might have been by this time or it might have been a little later. <laughs> well, let's take a break here. We'll play a promo and when we come back, it's Marvel Two and One number fifty seven. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <laughs> <clears throat> no. No, no, that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. 
I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And we're back. Marvel 2-in-1, number 57, at a cover price of 40 cents. Meaning I acquired this book for a fine enough 38% discount. And Paul got it at cover price. I got ripped off, man. (laughs) And the first four pages of my comics, of my issue, have approximately a three-inch tear from the bottom. So it's possible that I was overcharged, even at 25 cents, for this thing. The story inside better be good, Paul. No pressure. pressure. I didn't write it. <laughs> hey, hey, you picked it, man. <laughs> the cover by Al Milgram and George Perez shows the thing in an underground lab holding up a huge piece of machinery, struggling to keep it aloft, to keep it from crashing on top of Quasar and the Bill Foster version of Giant Man, formerly Black Goliath. We have two text boxes describing the upcoming drama. Blasted by Claw. Blinded by Solar. Ben. Quasar and Giant Man. Battle on. And then a little box that says, also within, Project Pegasus. Wondar wakes. So, Paul, thoughts on the cover? Well, I don't think it's helped by Al Milgram inking it, first of all. I think uh, you see a little weakness in the faces of Giant Man and Quasar that... Perez would draw more superior to what you see there. They're they're done a little, just without the de- the fine detail uh, that I would look for there. Uh, the insets and the words just make it a very busy cover. It is busy. But I mean, I do like the image of the thing. He is front and center. He's taking up, oh, you know, maybe twenty percent of the cover. You know, that's compelling. You you can see the strain on him. It's it's right. pretty cool. So, you know, you, you could see a lot of the George Perez coming through. Right. But I don't think Al, I don't think Al Milgram helps him that much. Now, anytime I see this pose, I think of sort of that Ditko classic Spider-Man 33, is it? You know, lifting up mm-hmm. and struggling to get up. So And whether something like this is an homage or just a similar pose, it's still, think, it's still striking. I think the big thing about that Spider-Man thing is is less the one shot though and more the right. sequence. The, the build up, the sequence to it. That's true. I do I don't know if this is an homage to that or if this is I don't even know date wise if this is before or after. I guess this is before because I'm thinking I'm in my mind I'm thinking of the Secret Wars oh, right. issue with the Hulk holding Hulk the mountain holding keeping the mountain. it from crushing right. everybody. Right. And I think that's later than this. So it's certainly a striking pose. I think it's a pretty good version of that pose. Yes. I agree. And, and like I said, I think the thing is well drawn. You, you could see, you know, with Perez, you could see all the, all the background detail, the, yes. the, yep, right. whatever it is, the tracks, I guess, behind him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the machinery, just even on the right side, the whatever those things are the, with the little windows on them. Right. There's, a, there's a lot of detail here, which even at the top, you, you know, you start looking at the very top, there's all the smoke. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no there's no just empty space here. 
you know the, the the need for two word boxes plus an inset of Wondar when not only do you have the title of the book but you have to have the two main characters names at the top as well it's just there's a lot there i mean that takes up about the top third of the image marvel comics group marvel 2 and 1 the thing and wondar <laughs> wondar you know that is about a, a full third of that page the top is 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 covered by by those words and that does not keep them from using words on the rest of the book too yeah and then another 20% for the two insets right you know, so you're talking, you know, more than half the cover with all of that. Now, I did have one question, but I, I think I figured out the answer, and that is why, after reading the book, why Wondar gets the top guest billing, and I think it's just that I look through the rest of the issues in Project Pegasus, and there's a different character in that slot for each one. So Quasar has already had his cover appearance, and Giant Man has had his, and Wondar was one of the ones that was left. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point of what they would do if they'd have it when they did have an ongoing story, whether it was two, three, four issues, whatever it might be. They preferred not to have the same guest star two issues in a row. They would want that guest star that that was back for the second issue to be on the cover. So if somebody really liked them, they'd see, oh, right, they'd see back. But throw another name out there, so maybe you're going to pull in somebody else too. Right. And this one obviously has the thing, the inset of Wondar. It's got Quasar and Giant Man on the cover, and then it also has Claw and Sonar, as the kids say today, as shout-outs on the cover. Yeah, I can't imagine any kid in 1979 said, oh, great, Solar is in the book. Let me buy it. <laughs> this is going to fill my Solar collection that I have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I could even see Claw. He, yeah. had some, you know, he had some key moments. Maybe somebody might be a Claw fan, you know. But but Solar, really? <laughs> now, as we said, this is part five of six of the Pegasus, Project Pegasus. Can you give us sort of the 15-second, 30-second rundown on just what was going on in these, in these stories? Well, Project Pegasus would have been kind of a vague energy study group, <laughs> There's some indication that it's sponsored by the government, some indication that there's private industry involved. Uh, The thing is invited over to take a look at their security systems, give some input into it. Quasar is the head of security. He, at this point, hadn't really appeared in too many issues yet. Uh, He had been affiliated with S.H.I.E.L.D. and then kind of went off on his own, and he became the security chief of this project. The thing came by to check it out. There, there was a, uh, a character in there, I think his name was Leitner, who you know, had nefarious uh, motives and he was being manipulated by some sort of uh, you know, shadow organization. The thing ended up fighting Deathlock, who at this point had been stripped of all humanity and was being used by this shadow organization. And he, he was effectively destroyed in this book and wasn't re- resurrected for some time afterwards. Bill Foster, who had been going by the name Black Goliath, uh, was working at Project Pegasus, and then he he came out to help the thing at some point. Then Thing gave him the idea. He says, basically, it's like you know, you look at you, everybody knows you're black, so you really don't need that in your name. <laughs> so why, don't, why don't you go for Giant Man? I don't think that's been uh, beaten in any way. So, so that's when the name change came. Uh, there's also a subplot going on with uh, Thund- Thundra where she's involved in this uh, wrestling group 
and they get she gets manipulated along with the other women wrestlers, which include uh, Screaming Mimi, who eventually went on to be a Thunderbolt, and they break into Project Pegasus, and they end up you know losing a, a fight and end up jailed at the end of it. Uh, long story short, you know it's it's all about stealing some energy, and then this Lightner becomes very powerful eventually, and then he ends up being the the one they have to stop. And that brings us to When Walks Wondar, written by Mark Grunwald and Ralph Macchio, with art by George Perez and Gene Day. The story starts deep within Project Pegasus at a meeting of the project's security team. This gives Quasar a chance to try out his future gig at the Expositional News Network, bringing the team, and us, up to speed on what happened in the recent issues which is a little bit of what Paul just said. Uh, a range of separate attacks have happened on Project Pegasus by Deathlock and Thundra and the Grapplers. Also, Nuclo, the atomic mutant, was released from his cell and nearly triggered a nuclear disaster. Quasar, Giant Man, and Thing conclude that this is an inside job, that someone from Pegasus is helping with these attacks. They put the base on alert. Thing goes off to question Thundra again, hoping to be able to talk her into explaining what exactly happened. But her cryptic answers don't help, except that she reveals she knows nothing about Deathlock's break-in. Wondar, the alien man-child, has awakened and just takes a stroll through the halls of Project Pegasus. His energy-dampening powers absorb the nearby power sources that he passes, and he unwittingly frees Solar from his cell. Solar discovers that his powers can't harm Wondar, and decides to free some of the other criminal captives to help him find a way out. He tries Electro, but he is all bandaged up following a recent run-in with Spider-Man. When Solar continues to look for a prison break buddy, Quasar and the other heroes have the computer log sifted through and the computer determines that the only Pegasus employee who's been seen in the areas of all the attacks is Thomas Leitner. To Ben's utter lack of surprise, he didn't trust him from the moment he laid eyes on him. But he didn't want to condemn a man based on just a hunch. Solar bursts into Claw's holding cell and is furious to find only Claw's claw. And he throws it against the wall, which causes Claw's body to reconstitute and for the villain to regain consciousness, and the pair make their prison break for it. Quasar, Giant Man, and the Thing are searching for Lightner, who's finished the Nth Projector, but instead of using it to destroy Project Pegasus like his masters intended, he wants to restore his one-time powers as Black Sun. The power-hungry scientist flips the switch with unexpected results. The heroes run into Solar and Claw, and a brawl ensues, and we end up with a scene from the cover, Ben holding up this massive weight. He is able to slow the escape attempt using a gimmick from one of them old Roadrunner cartoons. Solar attempts to fight Quasar one-on-one, -on -one, but he's outmatched. At the same time, the Thing and Giant Man overpower and defeat Claw. Meanwhile, Wondar has just wandered his way into the room where the Cosmic Cube is being stored, just sitting out like that. After the villains are defeated, 
three superheroes try to figure out how the two crooks pulled off the escape from their cells. Unfortunately, they fail to notice Claw reviving, and the Master of Sound manages to knock them all out with a sonic blast. With the heroes zonked out, Claw puts his sonic claw against the Thing's temple, assuming that at point-blank rage, he can destroy his nemesis once and for all. Dun, dun, dun. To be concluded, next issue. Boy, a lot happened, but that was the 70s, right? I yeah, mean, there, there was not that decompressed storytelling no, that we have not now. at all. So, overall thoughts on the story? It still holds up as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't read this and think, uh, you know, it's so sad that I loved this one at one time and now I don't <laughs> like it. Uh, I, I still enjoy reading this. I think it's a hell of a lot of fun. There's points in it where you, where you scratch your head a little bit and wonder you know why would they do that or whatever but overall i really like it and at the end you know you really wonder how the heck is he going to get out of this there's a guy who's about to, to shoot him point blank in the head in the head and there's some energy damping guy walking around how the heck is he going to get out of this <laughs> I, I still enjoy the heck out of this yeah. i actually like that those opening recapped pages they're sort of almost a cone of silence type meeting room that they're in that's right in my notes i said it's right out of get smart <laughs> exactly it's a little bigger a, they, they have a little more room than maxwell and the chief did they have um, a little more room but you know what bill foster why don't you go in there as a giant man even <laughs> though there's no reason for you to be giant because there's a little too much room for us exactly and ben do you need to smoke the stogie not just underground in the contained facility but under the dome dude come on it's one of the things when I look at this with a critical eye that jumps out at me that does that did not bother me on, on initial reading and would not really bother me if I wasn't trying to turn a critical eye to it. But when Perez drew this, there's really no functionality that I can think of for the setup and the way this is all arranged. Why would you have this meeting room as kind of a, a, a theater type arrangement where everybody can look down on it? I mean, obviously, you know, that's you just have like a little conference room or something uh-huh. somewhere. Obviously, that's for our benefit. Yeah, it's purely for artistic <laughs> purposes. But I, I prefer it when well, you can come up with some sort of practical reason for things to exist the way they do. Um, and I, I do, really can't think of any here. No, I do like the fact that it is under dome, that this is like the security meeting. It's a so, dome with so, a door. Well, the thing walks out of it on page three. Well, yes, he pushes it open. I'm assuming it would. Paul? Oh, I'm not saying it was open while they were talking, but but it's it's, it's like a big plastic dome with a door in it. it it's the, closed in the, in the splash kept, page. It, it it kept the sound out. They could have a quiet, a secure discussion. Much like Maxwell and the Chief. <laughs> now, in terms of the characters and how they're behaving, that's a little more for you to tell me, because with the exception of the thing, I'm not familiar with many of these characters. At this point in my life, I was firmly a DC fanboy. So, Solar, Quasar, Giant well, so, Man, Solar, Thunder, did they did they make sense the way they're portrayed here? I, I would say so. I mean, Quasar at this point is a young, wanting to prove himself, slightly brash hero. And I think he's presented pretty accurately that way. Uh, Bill Foster, you know, a little older, probably more insecure and takes more chances to try and prove himself because of that. Thundra was really pretty consistent at this time. She she came from, you know, another world and saw the thing actually as her potential soulmate. 
and and she wanted to prove that to him by beating the living crap out of him. Uh, <laughs> one one Dar was he was kind of like a Superman analog in some ways that he he was from a dying planet, and his parents sent him off in a rocket ship to Earth, but then the planet never exploded like they thought it was going to. And the problem is he aged from uh, being kind of an infant to, I guess, physically being in his early 20s with no mental nurturing. So he was he had the right. brain of a, of a baby. Yeah, so that, yeah, they or, call or him the a, knowledge of a baby. Yeah, they call him a man-child. It's a lot of innocence and, and unawareness about and him, immediately, which immediately. is really an interesting take on a character. People tried to subdue him or whatever, and you know the the thing was actually one of the few people who were uh, kind to him. Mm-hmm. So he became Uncle right. Benji. But given that background, it it does sort of make sense that he'd just be sort of wandering around this facility, unknowingly, yeah, he, he unknowingly been, unlocking the cells and yeah, he unknowingly been, like, fighting off Solar. Place. He was he was introduced, you know, to this series, I believe, in the second issue. So he's you know this is a, a long running subplot. And it, it's finally coming to fruition uh, in the final issue of this particular storyline. In that in that episode, I think you guys talked about Wondar. Either he had appeared in that one or or was coming up. Yeah, I and, think and you, you guys if I remember right, I think he was him. in a coma in that issue. Mm-hmm. Now the other thing I noticed as a DC guy is that they're they're creating an nth projector. Yes, it sounds a little too much like Hawkman's nth metal for my taste. I'm, not, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, that's. I guess. I guess the thought is the nth degree. Right. I think that's what what they're trying to play on a little bit with that title. I don't know if they're trying to steal it from from Hawkman, but <laughs> certainly not an original term. I like Solar wandering around looking for a breakout buddy. Again, I'm not that familiar with Solar. I don't think he had many appearances before this. I do remember him appearing in the uh, in Avengers 126, which was his last appearance before this one. But I, I really, you know, never understood his character that much. But I guess he's that insecure that he needed somebody <laughs> right. to come along with him, which is, you know, it's it's interesting that they put that in that way. I mean, it was not portrayed as funny, and it wasn't funny, you know, as a 14 year old or 17 year old reading it or whatever. But it's kind of funny now looking back at it. You know, like you said, that he need like this level of of insecurity, and it's it's humorous when he checks in on Electro, and he's totally you know bandaged and in traction head to foot. When he throws Claw's claw, <laughs> uh, that that kind of reminded me of Charlton Heston at the end of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> right. So they killed you, blast them! I'm just picturing, damn you, damn you all to hell. I guess you know he he felt enough kinship with Claw from that that one appearance in Avengers 126. That, uh, you know, even though he was so weakened, he brought him along with him anyway. <laughs> Plus, that, again, maybe the insecurity thing. Wanted to have a, a breakout buddy. Reading through this, there's that joke that we use today where we see a, a story and we say, wow, that would be six issues today. You know, this oh, decompressed yeah. storytelling. It's it's really cool that this is a six-issue story from, you know, coming up on 35, 40 years ago. And it's dense. That's, I mean, that's if, what I if, if you read all six, if you read all six of these, it'd take you a couple hours. I mean, it's 15, how, how many, 15, how many 20 issues would it take of, to do this today? <laughs> exactly. And there's a ton going on. I think it's great. But it shows you not every story needs to be decompressed. Right. And there's not 
anything in this that is so groundbreaking to the characters other than Wondar that you say, oh, that's a missed opportunity because you didn't decompress mm, it. Right. I think this this flows along nicely. It's nicely paced even though it's so dense. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a story of epic length, but it takes place in this confined area. You know, you're underground. You're, I mean, this is a huge lab, but still, there's a little bit claustrophobic about the setting. Yeah. You know, it again, it's in somewhat of a small setting, confined area, and you've got really second tier type characters in a sort of second tier title. That's my interpretation, though, with the exception of the thing. I, I think that's fair. None of the co-stars in this, or the villains for that matter, I guess Claw's the, the most significant villain, or Deathlock in the uh, earlier issue. But I think that's great that they took that setup, which is not epic, and really created this epic storyline out of it. I think Mark, Mark Runewald did a really nice job with this. And, and, and despite my criticism of the way the... Uh, the, the platform doesn't seem to have a purpose. The George Perez <laughs> art here is beautiful. Oh, yeah. It, Had, it really just shines. Who inked him in this? Uh, Gene Day. I think uh, I think Day did a nice job with it. Mm-hmm. One he, thing I noticed was that there are a ton of panels in this yes. issue. And that's something, again, we, we don't get in, in modern day as much. Because once we get past the first few pages where you've got a couple of big panels of them you know, having this meeting under the dome. Once you get past that, we're looking at six, seven, eight, nine panels on most pages. Yeah, there's not, there's not a lot of splash page type uh, pictures here. Not a lot of poster images, except for the first and second pages, really. Right, right. Again, you've, you've got a lot of characters, so you need to make room for them. But there is a lot of room for the, all the characters, the heroes and the villains. Well, to, that's the, it's the to, George Perez trademark. Exactly. You know, you have enough room for the, all of their plots to be advanced. There is an interesting side point here where uh, Claw, his last appearance before this had been in Black Panther number 15, and when he's awakened, he makes he makes reference to it, and then there's a uh, an, an editor's box noting that. But apparently there was a retcon some, at some point after this where there's an appearance in between the two. That just, you know, I guess he forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit, if you know, about Thomas Leitner as Black Sun. I don't Do you know, know too much about he, that character. He appeared, I believe, in an episode of Marvel Team-Up. I know I read it, but I don't really remember too much <laughs> about it. Oh, no, actually, it was an issue, excuse me, it was Marvel 2 and 1 number 21, according to the editor's note on it. But I really don't remember him to speak of. I, I, if my memory is correct, he was kind of just a throwaway villain at the time. Okay. So Ben was suspicious of him, but it's not a case of he should have remembered exactly who this guy was. No. Okay. I should have probably pulled my issue of Marvel 2 and 1 number 21. Yeah, because some, some of these Marvel characters from this era, this is your wheelhouse, buddy. This is not my wheelhouse. <laughs> okay, and I'm, I'm looking quickly. What I can tell you is Marvel 2 and 1 number 21, the co-star in that was Doc Savage. Oh, wow. That was... Written by Bill Mantlo, drawn by Ron Wilson. As best as I can tell, it's kind of a little story. Like this, looks like there's two different perspectives on it at the same time, and then eventually the two converge and they take on this character. And they do mention the name Leitner in here. I'm looking quickly on the right. digital copy, yeah. but not not a heck of a lot going on here. He's he's just taken in by the authorities at the end. 
So how he would get through the vetting process into Project Pegasus, uh, I'm not really sure, other right. than maybe the uh, evil benefactors mm-hmm. did something mm-hmm. to, to get him in. Right. But not, not certainly not a, uh, a character of any significance. Right. So towards the end of this issue, we get the thing's hero moment. You know, we're lifting the uh, thing, li- lifting up the thing, and whipping the track like that, which I don't think would actually work. But well, that was one of my my Blaine Dalla questions: was can you can you do that with a track? It this this is slightly less silly than when they showed them doing it with a concrete sidewalk. Right. You would think this this metal might have some give to it. In an effort to to make it work, they make it almost look like Doctor Octopus's arms. Right. Yeah, very small segments. Yes. They're connected but together. But it's still. I don't. I don't know where something that flexible would have the strength to hold the cable car or whatever you want to call that uh, thing that they're riding on with it. So it, it really doesn't make sense to me. The other one, from a physics point of view, that I, I just scratched my head a little bit was when uh, Solar is trying to attack Wondar and he jumps after him, and the energy dampening takes the energy, I guess, the kinetic energy of his leap, and then he falls straight down as opposed to just kind of having that normal arc that you would have. Right, right. But I don't know that eliminating energy would make that happen. I that, don't. That know. would actually stop the momentum. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you go to the whole object at rest tends to stay at rest, right. object in motion tends to stay in motion. You're not creating new energy to keep it in motion. It's, it's just the forward momentum it already has. And my understanding of physics is pretty rudimentary, so... Perhaps if, he's, if he listens to this, Blaine will have uh, an, an email to you explaining how that might work. I gave that one a pass because it was kind of funny. And I give the one with the tracks a pass because it's an epic hero moment. Yeah, and, 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 okay and it is that. the coming together of the villains and the heroes, and it's it's a great scene. And these are the things that, that stand out to you when you read it with a critical eye. When you say, exactly. all right, we're going to talk about this issue let me look in, you know, look a little deeper than just reading it for enjoyment and moving on. But there's nothing really that bothered me about it until I read it that way. I also, I, I thought the scene with Electro was kind of cool. I really liked, and this this was something that I thought Marvel had over DC in this era. Well, apologies to uh, the DC enthusiasts because I love the DC books too. So please don't, you know, nobody think I'm trying to diss them. But I, I love the shared universe continuity aspect that Marvel had that DC was a little slower, right. a little slower to the party on. To have him go in there and find Electro and have him all bandaged up and everything because of his appearance in Spider-Man is, is just a nice little nod to continuity that I don't think right. DC was giving you in this era. That's a definite uh, distinction between the companies at this point and I would lean towards the Marvel approach. That just gives you that sense that you have stepped into a larger world. Well, I mean, we, we've covered, you and I, on Back to the Bins, different books, and we've covered a couple of Silver Age books as opposed to Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. And when you do a Silver Age book, there's, there's a totally different feel to it. And I love those books for what they are, and I love the Bronze Age books for what they are. And my preference is the Bronze Age books, but that doesn't dim my appreciation for the silver age. And we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum in the past, but Marvel entered the bronze age very early in the 1970s, whereas DC kind of had to came into a kicking and screaming uh, very slowly with occasional dalliances into the bronze age, but they really didn't get into it heavily until the eighties. 
I can enjoy those 70s books for what they are. I enjoy them as, even though technically it's in the time period that we call Bronze Age, but I enjoy them more as Silver Age stories. Right. If you go into them with that expectation, that helps. Yes. And, and again, there are exceptions to the rule. So if somebody wants to email in and say, oh, but what about Neil Adams right, and sure. uh, Denny O'Neill's run on fill-in-the-blank, Green, Green, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Batman... Yeah, there, there were there were exceptions to the rule. What about the Teen Titans? Yes, another exception to the rule. But there was still a lot more Silver Agey stuff going on in DC over that era. So Agreed. anybody takes exception to it, the email address is quarterbinpodcast. Hey, wait. Or as Emily says, if you disagree with us, send your emails to trentismagnus at trentismagnus.com. <laughs> and if you can't get a hold of Trent, this is always shared. Now we have you know, obviously skipped over the highlight page of the whole book, Captain Marvel. Is Doctor Doom in this? Captain Marvel versus Professor Sneer. It's just a one-page insert. I don't understand. And it is it is really cool how they win the day with Twinkies. <laughs> I think of all I – mean, I'm not sure why Professor Sneer and Captain Marvel aren't on the cover. I mean they're pretty big stars. And, and I'm a little surprised Captain Marvel never says Shazam throughout. I think that's a different Captain Oh, that was the one that, that got changed into Photon. Too many Captain Marvels. <laughs> well, just to keep DC from having the rights to it. <laughs> Which, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I shouldn't find it amusing, because it's kind of a creepy move when you think about it. But I still find it amusing. I, and I guess, from their perspective, wait a minute, we're Marvel Comics, we should exactly. have Captain that, Marvel. I, I can understand that. It's reasonable in that, in that case. Now... Paul, we're going to talk about the verdict of this book, and we usually you know, grade on a different scale than you're used to, but make you comfortable, we'll grade the book on the back-to-the-bins method. So do you have a letter grade for us for the cover, the interior art, and the story? As, as I said, I think the cover is really well drawn. I'm not so crazy about the inking, and I'm not so crazy about just how busy it is, but I think it's really a nice George Perez cover overall. So bouncing back and forth on those two, uh, I was tempted to go B plus, but because of the weaknesses, I'm just going to say a B on the cover. The interior art, I think is superior in many ways. The lack of uh, functionality of the room that they're in and the area they're in aside, I really don't have any qualms with the interior art at all. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give the interior art an A. I, I think it's really really good. It's compelling. It's well paced. It's just everything about it is is terrific. And I feel similarly about the interior story. It's very dense, but it's pretty easy to follow. The biggest weakness in the interior in the story is just how much of the exposition is given in a manner that totally conflicts with what I was saying earlier that, that saying that, you know, break totally breaking that rule and having a character say, well, let's just talk about what happened in the last three <laughs> right. issues because you weren't here, even though you were, that's probably the biggest weakness to it. I'm going to let that keep it from getting an A and I'm going to give it a B plus on the interior sto- on the story rather. And overall, I'm going to give the book a B plus. So I'm on pretty much the same page for me. The cover is a solid B like I said before, either the reference or the similarity to that Spidey pose or just a grand heroic pose. It's striking. It works for me. There's a lot of words there, but overall, I think the, the cover works. 
interior art is something that I tend to not notice a whole lot, but there was nothing about this that bumped me. And then when I look back on it to specifically look for those things, uh, I see a lot of energy and I like the panels. So, so some strong stuff there. Again, probably a B plus. And the story, despite being the fifth part of a six-parter, does have stuff happening. You know, plots are advancing. There's a lot of drama. It is a bit wordy for my tastes, and that's the late 70s sort of scenario that we're in. But I would far prefer a book that's a little too wordy to say, you know, $4 comics that you can read in four minutes. If you're going to make a quote-unquote error, I'd rather have too many words than way too few words. So I'd, I'd rather that uh, be in that direction. So again, a B or B plus. So again, I'd, I'd, I'd give it a B or B plus. Very solid stuff. Now the problem is that this is not back to the bins, young man. <laughs> so even though I did humor you with this letter grade stuff, <laughs> B grade. I'm just finding it amusing that you called me young man. <laughs> I'm getting ready to visit my dad in a few days. So compared to him, you're a young man. Just think I'll, of it that I, way. I will, I will take it in whatever <laughs> form it comes. So, you know, we, we grade things pass-fail. So was this comic worth 40 cents or 25 cents? You, could, you can answer based on either, either scale. <laughs> I'm going to go with the 40 cents because that's how much I paid for it. Exactly. And I'm going to go 40 cents in 1979 oh, dollars, see. which would probably be the equivalent of, I don't know, maybe a dollar seventy-five. Yeah, a couple of bucks, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to I'm going to give it a, still a resounding pass. This brings us back to what we talked about earlier, doing the second or third issue of a uh, an ongoing story. Right. And I think it passes on that level, and I just don't want to. I didn't want to get to the end of this and. And, and feel that I left that out. It gives you enough background on what happened in the right. three or four issues before it, and it leaves you off wanting to see how it ended. I mean, it does it, it does end with a great cliffhanger. Even though it, it's pretty easy to figure out well, where they go. Yes, going. but if you are of a certain younger age, you might not put two and two together. Yes, okay. We did joke about the Cone of Silence and the meeting room and... You know, as I said, it's Quasar trying out for the Expositional News Network. But I thought that was an interesting way of bringing us up to date. It didn't make sense, but I would rather that almost than a narration box or even a previously on box. You know, at least there's the attempt. We said it sort of fell a little flat, but at least there was an attempt to sort of within the story itself have a scene that brings the reader up to date. In, in that sense, like you said, as I said, to quote myself, I agree with myself. <laughs> Picking this one up uh, fresh, I, I was brought up to speed pretty quickly with what was going on. And like I said, there's a good cliffhanger at the end, and stuff happened in between. So despite the big rip in the cover that I have of my issue, definitely worth a quarter. A legitimate quarter bin deal. So, Paul, before we wrap up, yes. where can our lovely listeners find you talking about comic books, TV shows, various other sorts of things on the internets? Well, you can find me on the Two True Freaks Network, where I am a co-host of the weekly Back to the Bins show, along with Dr. Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner. 
And in that show, we are brethren to the Quarter Bin podcast in that we take random old comics, we get synopsize them, and we tear them apart in either a loving or hateful way. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on Listen to the Prophets, which is a podcast where we are going through the series Deep Space Nine episode by episode. We are currently uh, up to season three, and we intend to get through the seven seasons and get through all of that. And then we're doing a podcast mini-series or maxi-series, depending on how you want to look at it, currently called Keep Em Flying, which is going through Firefly. And that's being done, I like to think, a little bit differently because I've never seen the show. And I'm only watching it as we record episodes. So you're getting a newbie perspective on the show, which I think is more interesting for some people. Yeah, I think it's a nice combination of the veterans and the new guy to, to that particular party. That's, that's a nice dynamic. Thank you. And thank you for having me on here. I, I, I enjoy our chances to talk. Glad to have you here, Paul. And that wraps up our coverage of Marvel 2-in-1 number 57, bringing episode 75 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 76, we're jumping back up into the 90s. But don't worry, it's not that type of 90s book. We're looking at Ms. Tree Special number 9 from DC Comics, cover dated fall 1992. And if all goes according to plan, oh, there'll be another guest on that episode. So if you have any questions... I wonder or, who. I wonder who. Shh. It's a, it's a secret. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, but not who's going to be the guest on next episode, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen... And I'll see you in the quarter bin. I would imagine most of our audience overlaps. Right, I would think so. If we if we Venn diagram it, I don't think there's I a think lot of so, right. <laughs> I think there's a lot of mutual space there. Mm. But there's still gonna be some people who listen to your show and don't listen to mine and vice versa. And you know, I, I think it's a positive to get that exposure out there. Do you ever listen to a show though that you're not on and you have no reason to think that you have any nexus to it at all? And then all of a sudden they say, yeah, Professor Allen, blah, 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 blah. You know? And doesn't yeah, it make you smile? Yeah, I've, you, I've, I've gotten a couple of shout-outs in odd places. Every once in a while when, when that happens, you know, I, I start thinking, you know, not not to, to, to get a big ego over it because I don't, but just, just but you know, fun. knowing that, that, you know, these people have in any way been entertained by me right. is, is, a, is a good feeling. Usually for me it's in the context of, I paid 50 cents for this. I'm like, what what would Professor Allen think? <laughs> usually the context of being that cheap, a lot. but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. That's fun. There are times, even when I'm not on Back to the Bins, I feel like I am. You're certainly among the most commonly referenced people <laughs> on the show, even when you're not on it. I mean, for the first year and a half of Shortbox Showcase, Emily lived here, and it was still somewhat hard to coordinate. Now that she's moved out, even though we can hold, you know, over her head, well, you know, come over, we'll feed you dinner. You can even bring your laundry. And How far does she live from you now? About 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Okay, that's so, it's, so it's easy. I mean, but I'm saying even with that, you know, it's a little hard to coordinate sometimes, you know. Well, I mean, what is, what is I mean, Emily? 20, 23? 25, 25. 25? Yeah. So, I mean, she's in an she's age where... She's got, like, friends and stuff. Yeah, you're going to be doing things socially that don't include your mom and dad. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Explain this to me again. What am I, three years older than you? Yeah, I'm, I'm 50. 
And I'm 53. Okay, yep. so now were, were you buying new books at the time this came out? I was overseas. I lived overseas from 75 to 78. Probably didn't get back into comics again till probably 81 or so. So, and, and, which, where I would have been about 15 or 16. I had a couple high school comic buddies actually. There were a couple local old style cons. You know, one day shows at the hotel. Right. Ball yeah, I, I missed those. Yeah. We just I don't want to go too far afield yeah. because I know you want to get back into this. But no. uh, where where'd you live overseas? Uh, we lived in Thailand. That, that must have been fascinating and kind of lonely at the same time. It was it was you know certainly an experience that shaped me for good and bad you know in in some ways you know being pulled out of grown up with you know these kids through whatever sixth grade and then go overseas or fourth grade to go overseas for fifth sixth and seventh grade and come back and try to reintegrate. You know, that's a struggle, but it was a great cultural experience, that's for sure. Certainly a net positive. Certainly a All net right. positive. Then, then that's that's the bottom but, line. Uh, yeah. On on post, at, or at, at the embassy, had a gift shop that occasionally had comics. So I, I had a few over there, and I, and I did have a couple comic buddies. But at that point, it's basically you're trading back and forth. You're, you're not adding much to your collection on a regular basis. Yeah, just just trying to find some new content to read. Exactly, exactly. You know, you might get one or two new new books a month. You know, added to the to the community. Yeah, <laughs> the no, community at this, at this point, at this point when this came out, I was adding furiously. No, you know, okay. picking up all all the new stuff that that interested me at all. Plus, fairly regularly going to like hotel shows with my buddies and. Right. Those were fun. Those yeah, they were. I kind of felt like I relived it a little bit. When uh, was it two years ago at New York Comic Con, uh, and I was there with Dario and Dave, mm-hmm. and I dove headfirst into a fifty cent <laughs> book uh, seller. You know, they had a big collection of stuff, and that that's really what reawakened the uh, the collector's mentality in me. Oh, that's great to to fill up the you know that day. I can, I mean I can pinpoint it right there. <laughs> that going through that stuff, I started saying, okay, you know what. This is reasonably priced enough that, like, exactly. if I, you know, I could get a run, and that was fifty cents, which I know is right. a little out of your speech. Hey, hey, you know. <laughs> but I could get a run of twenty books for ten bucks. Right. That's I can handle that. It's the you know run, getting twenty books and having it cost me seventy five, eighty dollars that yep. I, I had a yep. problem with. Yep. Emily and I dove into Convergence when it was happening, and so that was by far the most we'd ever spent in a about a two month period. And that, even at that, we were buying you know half the books, maybe you know five a week. That's twenty the only, bucks the a only week. Thing that's I, eighty bucks a month. That's a that's yeah, that's that's, that's a healthy chunk. Price. You're talking. The only thing I've I've picked up new off the stands at cover price recently was the Star Trek Planet of the Apes crossover. <laughs> right. Crazy thing is, if you wait a couple of years, well, a if you wait six months, you can get the trade from the library on just about yeah. anything you want, and if you wait a couple of years, you can get things for you know even just two bucks or one buck. I'm not soured on the fact that I paid full price for that because, like, when I've gone to these fill up a box for fifty dollars, I've never seen any issues of that. Exactly, event. exactly. So I'm okay with that. Right. If you have to let him in, it's fine. All right, sorry about that. No, no problem. End of show clip. <laughs> <laughs> Real life with Paul Spataro.